and welcome to Classical Schmaskal, the anti-classical classical music podcast. Tune in every Saturday as we discuss, deconstruct, and dissect what it means to be a musician in the modern world. I'm your host, Alexa Letourneau. I use any pronouns, and our guest this week is Christina Salerno. Hello. Thank you so much for having me, Alexa. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. Um, I'm wondering, as we get started, if you could just introduce yourself, kind of what you do, and a little bit about your background. Sure. So my name is Christina Salerno. I am currently executive director of Illinois Philharmonic Orchestra. I've been here since 2017, um, handle the administrative side of the orchestra. Um, Prior to being here, I was executive director of Salt Creek Ballet, located in the western suburbs of Chicago. Mm -hmm. Um, Prior to that, I was a professional ballet dancer for about 15 years. Yeah, and uh, it's been a great uh, careers, uh, careers plural in the arts. Yeah, that's amazing. So with a background as a ballerina, that's, I mean, it's super fascinating to me. I don't know uh, many professional dancers or former professional dancers or anyone in that field. Um, I'm curious if there's any skills that you learned in your dance career that have been particularly helpful to your role as a director of the arts. Yeah, lots of skills. Um, so first and foremost, I think dancers um, in general are pretty comfortable being in front of people and like with presentation, although we're um, usually trained to move and not speak. So speaking <laughs> is something I've had to learn a little bit. Sure. Um, but you know, like that performance quality, I think um, I'm actually an introvert, um, mm-hmm. but most people don't know that because I think I have kind of managed to um, occupy kind of an extroverted space and just being in front of people a lot. Um, dancers also tend to, um, you know, do everything, um, to a very high level, Mm -hmm. um, and kind of are overachievers as most, um, people I think that, um, train for anything that, you know, takes that, you know, um, you know, infamous a thousand hours of mastery, right? Like anyone like that, I think has an attention to detail and is able to kind of, apply that to other fields. Um, So I feel like that's something um, that dance definitely gave me. Um, Also like, you know, anytime you're in a performance um, oriented um, career or have that experience, like you know that life just doesn't happen the way you expect it to or that you plan for it. Yeah. So being able to kind of just go go with the flow when things don't work to plan um, and keeping a smile on your face, I think is something that ballet dancers also for really sure. Sell at. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then how did you decide to make this professional switch from, from a practitioner of the arts to an administrator of the arts? Yeah. So, um, a dance career is traditionally pretty short. So mm-hmm. a lot of dancers are thinking about what they might do kind of after their performance career. Although there are a lot of people now continuing on, um, much longer, which I'm really excited to see. Yeah. Um, but for me, I, I just kind of started noticing, um, cause I worked in a lot of different organizations and, and worked under different, um, administrations and then different artistic leadership. And I just kind of started to see, what to me seemed like was working and when it wasn't working. Um, And I just decided that I would want to be part of that um, kind of what is working um, environment for future generations. And so Mm -hmm. arts administration just became kind of a a natural progression um, for what I was doing. When I was in Boston Ballet, I was already working in their um, dancers resource fund, um, kind of helping raise money for dancers for their career transition. But 
was kind of the first opportunity that I had towards like the development side, fundraising, like planning an event, you know, all, all that kind of production elements, um, talking to donors, um, getting people in the door, logistics. So um, I kind of liked it and just kind of went from there. Yeah, I think that's really wonderful. And like, as someone who was, you know, working in that field, I think you you really get an idea of what works and what doesn't. That's definitely something that I ponder as I'm like moving through academia and the education system and this conservatory lifestyle is, I, I've definitely got more some ideas for when I will hopefully become an educator of my my own. So I, I think that that really speaks to something that's, that's true um, with, you really learn the system by being inside of it. For sure. And congratulations being on that journey. Um, you know, Thank like you. I think one of the things I've learned is that like the journey hopefully never stops. Like the yeah. schooling officially might, but like the learning doesn't. Um, sure. And I read, I read a great book by Thomas Friedman. It was a New York Times columnist um, a number of years ago, pre-pandemic, and it was called The Age of Acceleration. Um, mm. And in there, he kind of postulates that like gone are the days where we go to school and train for a job whatever that job may be that like yeah. now we're all creating our own working living environments. And so it's kind of exciting because there's a lot more flexibility. It's also a little scary because there's not as yeah. many um, clear cut answers, but you know, good for you for going for it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, for sure. I, I definitely feel that I'm already like, Oh, I'll just pick up this little side gig here and have this job here. I know that sounds fun. And it's, it's, a very multifaceted experience and I'm really having a great time with it. Um, so yeah, from that dance world, how did you make your way over to the classical music scene? Yeah, so I, I decided um, to get a master's degree in performing arts administration. Um, mm -hmm. And so I started looking around at different programs and there was a fantastic one just starting at that time at the Chicago College of Performing Arts at Roosevelt University. Um, it was a brand new program. And it was run, um, and I believe still is, by a man named Henry Fogel, um, at the time was dean of the school. Um, but he, Henry had been um, president of the Chicago Symphony for 18 years. And yeah. so like, you know, his, his background was really steeped in classical music. Um, and so I did the master's program, absolutely loved it, had great um, faculty instruction and, and some great conversation and just started getting immersed a little bit more in, in the classical music scene. Um, I also realized during that point, um, there were a lot of things that I really missed about being a ballet dancer. There were a lot of things I did not miss, but there were some <laughs> things I missed. And one of the things I missed was I, I realized that I was really lucky to be in companies that always had live um, symphonic music, um, mm. pretty much for all of our performances. And I just loved classical music and I missed having it be a part of my life on a regular basis. Um, yeah. So when a job opened up um, here at IPO, um, I just kind of thought, hey, maybe I could could try my hand at running an orchestra and, and you know, learn some new skill sets at the same time, um, but be surrounded by music I love. Yeah, for sure. So did you kind of just find the Illinois Philharmonic just at the at the right time? Or was there anything that specifically drew you to that ensemble? Well, I, I don't know if Henry actually told me specifically about it. But at that mm -hmm. point, I was definitely like just more keyed in with musical ensembles and starting to investigate more of like what was in the area and what might be the possibilities. 
Um, so I'm not sure which came first, but um, definitely sure. my horizons were widened um, and I was really excited to hear about it. Yeah, amazing. So I'm really curious as someone who hasn't really engaged yet with any arts administration, what does your day-to-day -day sort of look like? What does this job entail? Yes, uh, so, well, I come in every day with an idea of what I will do. And I do, I like, yeah, I'm a big list person. And so like, I have a list written for like what kind of tasks need to get done. Um, <laughs> yeah. But inevitably like a whole bunch of different stuff ends up getting thrown at me. Um, mm -hmm. So a good portion of my, my job is like day-to-day -day management and operations type things. So, you know, I oversee um, our personnel manager and our librarian, although the music director oversees both of them as well in, in some facets. Um, and then, you know, our box office marketing and development. And so there's a lot of conversations that happen about like, where are we with the fundraising and what communications need to go out, what needs to be proofread, things like that. Um, issues with um, musicians coming through as far as, you know, who's being hired for the next concert and what instruments we need. And if there's questions about um, who we should be hiring, you know, a lot of times mm -hmm. it'll come through me, although I might not have the final say, I might have to bring that to our music director. Um, I also do a lot of the budgeting. Um, so the budget kind of start process starts with me. Um, music director will come up with programming for the following season and then I'll work on like costing it all out and saying this is awesome but we can't possibly afford this and so sure. like where can we make adjustments um where are the smart places to make adjustments where should we be spending more um I do a lot of fundraising so a lot of um calling and meeting with potential donors or current donors of talking to them about our organization and consensus building, um, getting people on board for bigger projects. Um, we actually just finished a strategic planning process, a, a plan last year. Um, and so we're not quite ready to be starting a new strategic plan, but like that's one of my roles as well is to be looking at like three, five years down the road, how will we get there? Um, what steps do we need to be doing to, to get us um, to those places? So you know, um, it's a lot of email, a lot of um, looking at contracts, a lot of negotiations, a lot of communications, um, a lot of proofing and, and just kind of asking a lot of questions to make sure that we're on target to get stuff done. Yeah, for sure. I also, like, what does, uh, what does the funding look like for an orchestra? Like, where does it come? Is it all donors or mostly donors? And what kind of say do they have on like things like programming or where does where does the money come from as someone totally clueless really yeah yeah so um we only make about 25 percent of our income from ticket sales um mm -hmm. so we have to raise a lot of money to be able to yeah. put on concerts um you know i think a lot there's definitely a movement towards um making you know all arts experiences much more um, equitable and and much more inclusive and and a lot of that comes down to socioeconomic status and like mm -hmm. who can pay and who can't pay um, and one of the things that we always think about though is you know it, it would be great to let everybody not pay um, right. but we still have to pay the artists like they're the one yeah. like and that's our biggest um, cost is actually paying artists for what they do um, I will say you know, I wish I could pay artists more as well, because mm -hmm. on, um, you know, a, a minute by minute, um, you know, cost analysis, probably in how much 
how many years and, and, and hours of work it takes to get to that one concert that, you know, mm -hmm. you hear for an hour and a half or two hours, you know, you're not really just paying for that two hour bit. You're paying for everything yeah. that came before. And we don't even come close. Any, no, no organization comes close to compensating for all that. Um, but so the rest of the money has to be raised predominantly from individuals. Um, so there's a lot of kind of one-on-one -on -one fundraising that goes on. Um, we do have a, a good number of corporate sponsors. We're always looking for more corporate sponsors. Um, unfortunately, I think over the past 20 years, a lot of corporate um, money has been um, gone to a lot of the larger organizations um, mm -hmm. and organizations that are really in the metropolis. Um, and because, you know, it used to be that you could just talk to a corporation and if you knew kind of someone a little bit high up in the organization or they really liked you, then they'd be able to funnel some of their corporate dollars your way. Um, mm -hmm. But now so many things are conglomerate or international companies or national companies. Um, you know, there's whole teams of people that are making those decisions and it's just harder to get in front of those people sometimes. Sure. Um, so I think that's one of the things that I'd like to see change and, and kind of shift back. Um, and then we do have a number of foundations. Um, we definitely get some, some funding from the Illinois Arts Council Agency. Mm -hmm. um, we've applied again for federal money from the National Endowment for the Arts. We'll see whether or not we get that. Sure. Um, and then there's a bunch of private foundations that um, support IPO. So it's, it's a mix all the time. Yeah, wonderful. Um, so I know that you were just named the 2022 Executive Director of the Year by the Illinois Council of Orchestras. So huge, huge congratulations on that. Um, oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I, it's, it's an amazing achievement and, and clearly so well deserved. Um, so I'm curious with that, what do you see as some of your greatest triumphs while working with the IPO? And what are some goals that you still have? Sure. So um, triumphs are, I think, um, the fact that the organization has, um, it, it, up until COVID, we had three years of increased audience numbers, um, yeah. which I think is fantastic. Um, and we've obviously been able to raise um, a lot more money, um, which, you know, although speaks a lot to the work that I've done, I think even more speaks to the quality of product that we put on stage, um, mm -hmm. because if that quality is not there, then you really can't raise money. Um, sure. So, you know, I'm really proud of expanding our educational efforts, um, especially in the light of COVID. Um, a lot of our education efforts prior to COVID were centered around kind of four youth concerts where we bust children into one venue and did some great concerts really wonderful um, experience, but it was harder and harder for school districts to do even during, mm -hmm. um, you know, before the pandemic. So now we've just kind of have to re-envision how we do that. And we're doing a lot more, um, you know, going into individual schools, servicing a lot more students right in their school district, talking to school districts about what makes sense for you and trying to fit those needs instead of just putting something out there. So I'm really proud of our, like, partnerships and our ability to kind of um, meet the need as opposed to just saying, this is what we do and do you want it? Mm -hmm. um, you know, future, I really wanna see us growing our programming to be more inclusive and more equitable. Um, that takes not only programming on our, our end, but it also takes, um, you know, audiences um, embracing sure. that. And yeah. um, I really have been, really, really um, impressed with our audiences and they've seemed like they've been excited kind of to go on this journey with us. And I'd like to see that 
um, grow. And, um, you know, over, over time, I'd like to see the orchestra become, um, even more visible in, in our region. Um, we have some exciting commissions coming up and I'd love to, you know, people to know more about that. Yeah. Wonderful. I'm, so can you talk a little bit more about the education initiatives? And I know um, that you have some current expansion process. Is that more geared towards going out into schools or what does that look like? Does education something very near and dear to my heart? So I'm always yeah. interested. <laughs> yeah, so we just hired a fantastic new education um, and community engagement director um, probably about six or seven months ago now, Lin- Lindsay Fredrickson. And um, Lindsay actually has her own program called Camp um, in the Western suburbs, uh, or actually, no, the Western Chicago area. She is in the mm-hmm. city, not in the suburbs, mm-hmm. um, where she um, gives um, instruments and music lessons to a lot of students who would otherwise have access Um, and so she's you know really near and dear um, with education as well so she's been you know making a whole bunch of programs like we have which we've always done a little bit but now we're just doing more of them and trying to be more proactive in um, going to schools with some um, string quartets some woodwind quintets Um, there's a Mm -hmm. brass trio that she's getting ready to bring to um, a a new library program to like read stories to pre-k through fourth graders probably um, and then Mm -hmm. have a music element with it uh, like artists going directly into the schools so some of our musicians going into the schools and talking with classrooms Um, something we've always done is called meet the maestro where our conductor goes in and usually to high schools and um, uh, conducts you know, a, a session of the school sure. um, there. Um, and then we try to offer free tickets so that kids, students and their parents can come to see concerts. So, you know, really we're not reinventing the wheel so much as we're trying to re-engage um, the community and really be a resource for all of the schools in the South and Southwest suburbs if they want um, a high quality musical um, experience that, you know, we're happy to come to them. And we also do coachings. We're doing yeah. some of those, um, with some local high schools. Um, I think out in one of the more Southern, um, suburbs we're doing, um, you know, introducing the students that are just starting a new spring program to what their instruments might be, things um, like that. Yeah. yeah. So really multi-tiered, multi-leveled, um, as part of the new Institute, we also have a fantastic harpist, Lisa Tannenbaum, who's going to be coming, um, and doing some master classes, not just with harp, but, mm-hmm. you know, to give the harp as a beginning, you know, experience. And then, you know, there's so many things that you can still talk to the kids about with rhythm and, and, um, yeah. you know, tone and, and tempi and things. And so using that as a, um, uh, kind of plank to, to, to jump to new heights. Um, and it, you know, both for students that are already engaged in classical music and ones that aren't, mm-hmm. um, you know, so often I hear adults now that come on our board or come to our concerts and I talk to them about like, why are you here? You're not a musician. And they said, oh no, but when I was in, you know, third, fourth, sixth grade, Um, you know, I had this experience that somebody came to my school and played some instrument and it really like opened my realm. And so I started listening or I started, you know, I wanted to be more involved. Yeah. 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 I just got chills. That's so cool. Yeah. 
So you talked a lot about community engagement, and I'm curious as to uh, how you perceive the di difference, and maybe this is a little bit of a loaded question, um, but how you perceive the di difference between community engagement and community outreach and what that looks like. Yeah, so it's kind of easy to change the word, um, you know, right. outreach being, you know, like we're doing something and we're going to give it to you um, mm -hmm. and engagement being like, what do you need and how can we meet that need? Um, uh, it, it is much harder to do it, I think, in practice authentically. Yeah. And, um, I think it takes... It, it doesn't take it doesn't take more time, but it takes different time mm -hmm. um, because you're no longer planning kind of in your silo in your office of what you think someone else would like or doing, you know, the the you know marketing studies to say, oh, there's an audience for this, but instead you're actually like going into the community and saying, What what do you what do you want to see? Like what yeah. would be helpful? And sometimes people don't know. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you, you know, have to give them some ideas. Um, but once they start getting those ideas or getting those, those touch points, then they start coming up with better concepts. Um, yeah. You know, that, that not better, but resonate more and you can find new, new ways to partner. Um, I think it's really about partnership and really, you know, the definition of partnership is that both parties, you know, get something out of the agreement. Um, and so that's the hope is that, you know, both parties are really benefiting. Um, sometimes it looks a little different. Um, it's yeah. challenging sometimes because, you know, we have a union, there's certain rules of how things need to happen. Um, and, you know, there's ways that things have historically been done. And so it's, it's really easy to say, oh no, we can't do that um, mm -hmm. because of X, Y, and Z rule that's already in place or whatever. And, and I'm really lucky to have a lot of good conversation with our musicians to say like, this isn't working. Let's figure out a way that yeah. we can, you know, this is what the school is saying they need. How, how can we do this? You know, like mm -hmm. how, how can we change this around? So I think that's, that's the engagement part. Um, yeah. And it's not just engaging the partner, but it's engaging everybody in your organization to think a little bit differently. Yeah, for sure. I think his, historical precedent is something that can be such a double-edged sword and kind of working within that, especially in a tradition that is so just, uh, is so established as classical music. We've been like doing what we're doing since, I don't know, like Hildegard von Bingen, maybe arguably, who know, who's to say? Um, but yeah, I, I think that's a really wonderful way of approaching that. And it sounds like it sounds like you're really making a difference in your community. I hope so. I like to think so. Um, yeah. You know, I think I think when you have a young person come to a concert, you feel like that's a win, um, mm -hmm. you know, and I you're not going to have everybody. You're not going to know all right. the wins now, though. This is the thing is that you're you know, yeah. you're going to find out 10 years from now that you sparked an interest in somebody and it led them yeah. to whatever. Um, you know, so um, I, we do, luckily we've been around long enough that we do hear some of those stories too, which is great. Yeah, oh, that must be so wonderful. I, I love that so much. Um, so I know it's not coming up for a bit, uh, but as a composer, I am really interested in your classical evolve competition and how the process for selecting composers to work with in residency. So I'm curious if you can touch on that. 
Yeah, sure. So we have a call for scores. Um, and usually, previously, our composer, um, the classical evolve competition had been in May. So we've mm -hmm. moved it now to the fall. So pretty soon, we'll be coming out with a call for scores. Um, mm -hmm. The scores that we get in, then um, we have a, our music director and then a judge kind of reviews them. And from that, they pick three um, composers to be finalists. And then those finalists are given a specific instrumentation for about 25 players. Mm -hmm. um, and so they compose a brand new piece for about 25 people. Yeah. Um, and then on the, the classical Evolve day, um, they actually, the, the composers come come here in residence and then um, the musicians get to see the music they've usually seen it like you know a few days before but not a long time mm -hmm. and um, then they play it um, and then we have an audience um, and then we do a voting so we have some judges um, and then the audience gets a vote the musicians get to vote and then the judges get to vote um, and then from there, we pick the, the composer that'll be our composer in residence for the next season. Mm -hmm. um, and that person composes three new short works um, for our yeah. season. Um, interestingly, when we first did the composer in residence, it was, um, you know, for young composers. And so I think we had an age limit of like 35 or something. Mm -hmm. um, and we had, I don't think we had any females um, submit. And so then, you know, through talking to a bunch of people, we heard a lot of times, unlike yourself, um, a lot of times females start into composing later on in life. And mm -hmm. by doing an age um, constraint, we were unwittingly discriminating against females. Interesting. Um, yeah. So we actually changed the second year. We changed um, the qualifications. And now um, you just have to be a, an emerging composer. Mm -hmm. So you can't have had more, I forget exactly the, the things, but you can't have had many works performed by a, um, a, a full adult symphony orchestra. Sure. Um, and so we actually had um, a number of females apply and that second year we actually had a female win the entire mm -hmm. competition. And so we actually have Martha Horse final work, which would have been in our 1920 season, um, mm -hmm. will actually be performed this May. And we're so excited about that. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, I, I that I never really thought about, you know, that kind of unintentional barrier, because um, I'm mostly focused on young composer programs right now, um, kind of as I'm sort of transitioning out of graduate school into probably my next set of graduate school, you know, degrees. But, um, but it is where my focus lies. And it's really interesting that having that kind of age versus experience, how that played out. Yeah, yeah. And who knows? I mean, hopefully these things will shift, right? Right. Um, as, as more and more people like, you know, see composing as a as a real career option or something mm -hmm. that they really want to endeavor at an earlier point, you know, I'd love to for see sure. that shift. Um, yeah. And I know for me, like, I so I started playing flute quite early and really, really quickly, maybe two, three weeks after I started playing flute, I was composing things for it, because they were just the same thing for me. It was making right. music. Um, and I like finding out the composition was like, A, not something that everybody just did. And B, that it was something that you could pursue as a career was like a very involved process for me. So even though I, I did start composing quite young, I can see how that could be something that is really a barrier. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. I Some people are just creative by nature right away. Um, yeah. So. 
Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, just the way that everybody's like, I don't know, artistic expression manifests. Um, sure. And it's so different. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to be really respectful of your time. Um, but is there anything else that's upcoming that you would like to promote or talk about or anything before we wrap up? Well, we definitely have our last two concerts of the season. Um, yeah. April 30th is an all Brahms concert. Um, okay. And then May 14th, we have a concert um, that includes uh, Prokofiev's Piano Concerto Number no. 3 and Martha Horse Reverberations and then um, uh, Scheherazade by Rimsky-Korsakoff. Mm -hmm. um, you know, all, <laughs> yeah, all, all like great music that a lot of people would recognize. Mm -hmm. um, so I think both are really approachable concerts. Um, and, you know, we perform in Palos Heights, um, so Southwest suburbs and super easy to get to. And, and I think when people come, they're always really impressed and, and sometimes surprised if they're new to, to kind of hear the orchestra and just know that you can, you know, experience live music for a pretty affordable price, mm -hmm. um, you know, in your local community. Um, and I guess I should mention if anyone doesn't feel like they can uh, um, afford that, we have a program with 34 libraries um, called Checkout IPO where people can actually go and uh, check out uh, tickets to a concert um, if they're still able at their local library. And you can check on our website for the libraries so cool. that are involved. Yeah. So just one way yeah. that we're trying to make it more accessible to as many people as possible. That's amazing. Can you tell me more about that program? Because now I'm, I'm super interested in that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, there's a list of um, orchestra of uh, libraries on our website. So ipomusic.org. And there's, um, mm -hmm. I think it's on the support section. Um, there's a checkout IPO and there's a list of all the different libraries. And so you just go to your local library and you know, ask them if they still have tickets available. Um, some libraries, they go really quickly. Some libraries, mm -hmm. they don't. Um, they're supposed to be rotating who gets them. So there should be you know, adequate um, ability. And we, we usually have, I don't know, about 75 to 100 tickets coming from libraries every That's concert. Amazing. So yeah, yeah, it's really oh. good. Yeah, what an amazing program. Libraries are just such phenomenal cultural centers and getting that partnership is, is super inspiring. Right. No, completely, completely. Yeah, that's so amazing. Well, thank you very, very much for being here. Um, and thank you at home for listening. Uh, if you enjoyed the show, there's plenty more where that came from. So do make sure to like and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Uh, and if you'd like to continue this conversation, please feel free to join the Discord linked in the description or visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash classical schmassical. Schmassical, S-C-H. M-A-S-S-I-C-A-L. I almost forgot how to spell my own show there. Uh, and remember, as always, stay classy and questionably classical.